it's this big brown rock. And that day, for whatever reason, it wasn't brown. It was really black. And I didn't even see it. Well, you've done it again. You've tuned into another episode of Tales from the Crips. This tale came to me last summer while paddling the Jarbidge Bruneau, and I've tracked down David Olson and John Hindman to recount their story. Through the episode, I switch back and forth between their perspectives as the story unfolds. I really enjoyed speaking with them both, and I hope you do too. If you're enjoying the podcast, throw a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help more listeners discover it. Also, I've been selecting guests largely based on recommendations from listeners. So if you or someone you know would make a good guest, please contact me. Also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, consider supporting my sponsors to help make it possible. Today's episode is sponsored by Four Corners River Sports. To me, Four Corners is exactly what a paddling shop should be. It's staffed with dedicated river people who know the sport inside and out and are all about having fun and getting people outside. Four Corners River Sports is located in Durango, Colorado. They are a full-service paddle sports retail and rental store. If you're looking to get on the water, look no further than Four Corners River Sports. Call them at 970-259-3893 or visit their website, www.riversports.com. This episode is also sponsored by Taylor Barker with the Group Real Estate Steamboat. I've known and paddled with Taylor for years, and he brings passion to everything he does. Steamboat Springs is a wonderful town with the Yampa River running right through it and has a vibrant and friendly boating community. If you're thinking of making a move to Steamboat or the area or purchasing a vacation home, be sure to get in touch with Taylor. He is happy to give you a lay of the land, the real estate market, and to help find the perfect property for you. You can reach him at 336-314-4353 or by email at taylor at brokerintheboat.com. You can find those links in the show notes. This podcast is being featured on paddlinglife.com. Paddlinglife.com does a wonderful job of finding all the most interesting happenings in the world of paddling and bringing them straight to you in the form of news, interviews, articles, videos, and more. Check out paddlinglife.com. And with that, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Crips. I'm your host, Kevin Cripps. And just like found art, my guest today comes by way of a found story. So a friend from Durango had an upcoming wedding, which meant it was a perfect excuse to round up a bunch of the Durango usual suspects for a river bachelor party trip. We ended up on the Jarbidge Bruneau River in, or section of rivers in, south, in southern Idaho. And as my friend puts it, it's a run known for its desert class five scenery if not it's class five whitewater. However, it's punctuated by a couple of marginally runnable class five drops. Um, and the signature drop is Jarbidge Falls, which after a bit of a scout in our group, everyone decided to walk. The reasoning, not the least of which being that we were out in the middle of nowhere. So several minutes downstream, we noticed a nice shiny paddle by the side of the river. We strapped it to someone's boat to take it out. And we continued downstream 
not really thinking much of it, but several more minutes, uh, we looked up on the scree slope above us and saw that there was someone hiking around in a dry suit uh, out seemingly in the middle of nowhere. And around the next bend, we found a couple of kayakers who were sitting in an eddy and our group, you know, being a large group with lots of stuff offered up what any help uh, we could give them. But they said they were fine. They said they had an incident and they were uh, totally self-sufficient. And so we moved on. Um, but that night there was a huge sun thunderstorm that rolled in. And as we were sitting at camp and feeling the temperature drop a good 20 degrees and rain falling, we were definitely all thinking about that group and wondering how they were faring and frankly we're expecting to see a, a helicopter flying overhead at any moment um but i was able to track down some of the group after our trip and uh today i have one of the group members david olson and he's been kind enough to come on to the show and tell his story so welcome to the show david thanks kevin yes it's a rather ignominious story perpetrated by me. So a little bit of background. I'm a native of Idaho. I'm 62 years old. I started paddling late in life in my mid-30s. Fortunately, I was in a ski town, Ketchum Sun Valley. I was in the ski industry back then for about 20 years. And that uh, location, there were a lot of really great world-class big water expedition boaters that had gathered there. And they were my coaches. So I learned from some really great guys and um, then I got addicted to this crazy sport, and I spent 10 years addicted to the North Fork of the Payette. And, um, but I prided myself in making good choices. I walked you know, Jacob's Ladder and Nutcracker those days that I just didn't feel it. And um, yes, and I paddled a bunch of the hard rivers of Idaho and Sea Sash and South Salmon and all the creeks of the Middle Fork, and um, just I was addicted for probably 15 years, and went through a few relationships because of this sport. But uh, now later in life, you know, it's it's kind of a young man or woman's game. It gets harder to um, continue pushing the envelope at this more senior time in this sport. My name is John Hindman. I live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, I've been up here in Jackson for almost 41 years now and, um, started kayaking here in Jackson. Um, this was where I learned and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing, favorable place to take up whitewater sports. I, um, started out learning the hard way of maybe some, some painful school of hard knock stuff, I think back in the eighties okay. and, uh, Back when so, they didn't have schools to, uh, there's no world-class academy to tell you what to do. Oh, that, that's for sure. Not, at least not here. I, I was the beneficiary of a couple of guys who definitely came from the East Coast and did grow up in some, some you know, some very structured schools. Uh, a gentleman by the name of David Powers and another guy by the name of Steve Martin, who actually, when he was 18 years old, was the junior national K1 slalom champion. Oh, so, wow. yeah, I did. I did. Uh, um, you had some good I, mentors. I got some good schooling after some bad schooling in the early But my, my paddling progressed pretty quickly. Um, I started in 84. And uh, I think by, let's see, by the 
midwinter of 85, I was actually on a trip in Mexico um, running the Hatate, uh, which is a travertine waterfall trip down there that used to be run by this guy named Coley Erdman, Slick Rock Kayak Adventures, um, and came back from one of those trips and started doing self-support trips uh, here in the United States after that. I, my uh, first trip was self-support on the Middle Fork, a uh, fall trip, and that was when I fell in love with it. And after That's that, easy it, one to cause you to fall in love. Yeah, it became yeah. Uh, it became a huge part of my life. Um, pretty pretty fast. I actually gave up a pretty lucrative job in the oil field to become a raft guide, so I could follow right. that passion <laughs> <laughs> all over the place. I uh, um, let's see by eighty six, eighty seven. I'd been back to Mexico again. I paddled a lot of the stuff in Idaho and uh, had gone down to Mexico and done a first ascent um, with Cully and some other guys. Um, Lars Holbeck was on that trip. Hmm. Um, Larry Dunn from Salt Lake City, who's pretty well known back in the day. Uh, Brian C. Holzer, some of the some of the guys who ended up, you know, they were in some of the early videotape kayak porn, whitewater porn uh, back yeah. in the day. And they all sort of took me under their wing and dragged me all over Idaho. And I got my first taste of California. Long story short, I've, yeah, I've been up here for quite some time. I've paddled a fair bit um, in, in the West. I haven't done much in the East. Um, I've paddled in New Zealand for six months. Did those trips in Mexico and I've paddled a fair bit in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a big part of my life for sure. Like it is pretty much anybody who's probably going to be listening to this. Um, you would think anyway, and that's at some point in time, how I met Dave. Uh, okay. I don't remember exactly when we met. Um, uh, it's been, a, I think I've known him for about 10 years now. I want to say somewhere in there. Um, but to be living in Jackson, him in Idaho, you're probably paddling a lot of the, the we, same rivers. And we did. We met on the North Fork. That was actually okay. where we met. And we met uh, at the Ledges Campground on the South Fork of the Payette on the backside. It's always called, we all call it the quiet side. You cross the bridge and go up the dirt road. And there's just always has been epically good camping up there. And uh, he pulled up in a sedan and started pulling everything out of the trunk of the sedan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all sitting there with trucks and some of us yeah. had. I think somebody had even brought a camper that time, <laughs> but that was, he had a, he had his dog with him and just ended up hitting it off and paddling together and realized that we had met somebody pretty special. And, uh, I think there were the next three or four trips over to Idaho, uh, especially labor day seemed always to be right around the time we would always reconnect and, uh, and paddle South Fork, North Fork, um, North Fork Laps. I think my most memorable trip with Dave was I went over by myself one, might have been Labor Day weekend, and I took an extra day or two. And we ended up doing nine laps on the bottom five over a wow. three day period. And it was so we did 45 miles of the North Fork on the bottom five. And it was, was really fun. And here's Dave again. Um, and yet, you know, the Jarbidge Bruno. It, it calls me every spring. I mean, it's one of the great remote wilderness rivers in the continental United States. It's the most remote um, county in terms of per capita in the entire lower 48. 
And when I've been out there, all the times I've ran it, we've always thought about, God, what would happen out here if you had an instant? Right. I mean, especially in those times before we had in, you know, spots or in reaches where you could actually communicate and, you know, start a 10 or $20,000 rescue. Um, and so we always talked about it, but it was in abstract terms because nothing had happened. And so I'm with two of my buddies, um, John Hyman and Rick Linsky. John, I feel is a better class five boater than me. I feel like I'm a better boater than Rick. And back to John. I, I, I know you've done the Jarbridge at least, at least a few times before. Kind of what, what's been your history on that run? How well do you know it? That was my, um, that was my like third or fourth self-support trip ever, uh, in 1986. It was the first time I ever ran it. And wow. I had come back from Mexico, uh, and actually met a girl down there and, uh, she was, uh, and then she was running trips on the Hatate, but I met her and sort of that spark click kind of a thing. Uh, she was living in Salt Lake at the time and. I was still living in Jackson, but we started dating more or less. And it was more like whitewater boating dates. Um, <laughs> I met her to run the Murtaugh and oh, yeah. then we really hit it off. And um, she was friends with several people here in Jackson that I was friends with. And we all set up a, a Jarbage Bruno trip and it was 86 was a huge year, uh, massive snow year here and over in the Jarbage mountains as well. And when we put on, uh, it was probably running 25, 2700 CFS, getting up towards that 3000 CFS mark again. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, I don't think anybody would like the only information we had about the river recommended nothing above 1500. And we mm -hmm. went ahead and put on anyway. And we came mm -hmm. off of that, that trip. Um, nothing happened. The only thing that happened on that trip was, I had never seen that many rattlesnakes in one place in my entire life. Oh. And it, I've never had a trip on the garbage like that since usually one at most, but we must've seen 50 and it got to the point where I was really happy. We had brought a tent <laughs> in the tent. Um, yeah, it was actually, that's the, that's still the thing I remember the most about that trip. Other than the fact that when we got done, we said we should never run it any lower than this because that was way too much fun. And nice. that was sort of ever since then, that sort of became my almost cutoff point was like the 22 to 2500 CFS level, which is pretty, okay. it's pretty stout in there at that level. It was like, wow, it's really fun. But it also gets you down the garbage fairly quickly because uh, mm -hmm. that water just keeps moving. And I think um, I ran it in 86 and uh, it's not something we went back to as a must do every year for a long time. We kind of went away started paddling California, doing the South Fork of the Salmon, other things like that. But I just always remembered how beautiful it was in there and what a special place it is. And I was getting on it about every four years, probably three to four at, at the best. And there might've been a period in there where I went uh, and did the West Fork of the Bruno instead. And mm -hmm. yeah, so we do a West Fork Bruno Bruno and not, not bother uh, with the upper garbage. And that's a magic trip as well. But always over in those drainages, it was getting in there about every three years. Um, okay. And cool. good familiarity so, with it. So yeah, I mean, that, that trip that you saw, 
uh, from 19 to 22 or 23. So about four years since I had been. Um, and I just knew that it was going to be decent water this year and asked Dave if he was interested in going. And he said, yeah, let me, you know, ask around, see if anybody else wants to go. I couldn't get anybody from here, surprisingly enough, to go. And uh, we made the plan to go and uh, with him and Rick. And, you know, we met over, like, as we always do. <laughs> in uh in bruno and uh basically at at ed's doorstep uh, you can't really have a garbage bruno uh, trip without talking about ed geiger and his wonderful wife eileen who have done i believe every shuttle i've ever done nice. where, where i paid yeah I, my history with ed and eileen is is long and i know dave <laughs> is as well they're just they're special people um, your stuff is always in good, good hands with them. And there's always beer in your car to take out, you know, <clears throat> that was, a, that was an amazing touch. Uh, that yeah. Was, that was, that was my first trip down the garbage Bruno. And, and so obviously the first time shuttling with Ed and the, just like this great little note with a cooler of beer. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a classy shuttle driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fearful about how much longer he has to do it. You know, I know it's hard on his back and he, he won't do the West Fork Bruno or the, he definitely won't do the, the Bruno put in ever, you know, anymore, but it's pretty easy yeah. drive up to the Jarbage. So he might have a few more years and hopefully I'll get it on it at least one more time. And, and before he says, I can't do it anymore. Not that I won't go, but it's just not to have him as your shuttle driver almost takes half the fun out of the trip. Part of the experience. Yeah. Yeah, no, I enjoyed hearing. He was telling stories about people he shuttled and everything. And oh, yeah. Definitely yeah. enjoyed talking with him. Yeah. yeah, he loves to tell you about all the famous boaters he's had in his car or had been in their car. And mm -hmm. uh, the, the nice thing is, is you kind of know you've, you've, you've hit it off with Ed when you get invited into the house to see the amazing collection of arrowheads and Western memorabilia and stuff that he has in there. And you get homemade pie and ice cream from Eileen. And that's, oh, wow. that's sort of like, <laughs> yeah, Rusty Bowman, who's another long-term uh, Idaho boater, who's really, really good friends with Ed says, yeah, that's, that's when you know that they actually like you is when you get to go in. The bar has been set. I've got to, I've got to step <laughs> up my game. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah, we, uh, I drove through the night and um, I, I actually slept at, um, Bruno Dunes State Park, which is highly recommended as a place to stop. It's only about six miles from, from Bruno, and you get up the next morning and go in and, and meet with Ed and climb in the vehicle and head up to, to Murphy, and, and he stands around patiently while you get all your stuff together. And It was a nice day. I remember that. We had great weather that day at the put-in, mm -hmm. looking at the pictures, and it's nice and sunny and warm. and. Um, <clears throat> From what I from what I've heard from guys that had been there before was that it's kind of it was it was obviously a big year last last spring in terms of snowpack in that basin, and uh, I think it sounded like one of the nice things was being able to do it later in the summer. Like they had described that often you go in a lot earlier and it can yeah. often, often get pretty inclement weather. Yeah, um, when you when you're in there in April or even into May. Yeah, no, and then, and actually the weather did change while we were on the on the river before we got to the first camp. We didn't go that far the first day. We only went about ten miles. Um, it was a little bit off schedule uh, for what I'm used to. And Dave and Rick, they just they just had a different idea about where they wanted to go. And we went 
I think right about 10 miles down and set camp. And um, the weather was changing right then. And we no sooner got tents set up than we got hammered by a fierce hailstorm and windstorm. And I actually didn't bring a body for my tent, just the fly and the fast pitch floor, you know. So I was in my tent and the hail was hitting so hard that it was oh, bouncing under the tent and piling up on my sleeping bag in the middle of my tent. And it lasted about 15 minutes and cooled off things pretty nicely. And, uh, and then, um, it, it passed. And then the beauty of it was when we stepped out of our tents, it, it really cooled down, but we were right up against a, a cliff on the river right side. We were on the river left, but it was the, the river was quite narrow there. And there were four waterfalls just going off on, uh. on that on that cliff face. And I, I got a couple of good pictures of it actually. That's spectacular. And, uh, yeah. So that was, that was our first introduction to how it can change fast there. And, uh, then we got up the next morning and <clears throat> paddled down to, uh, um, you know, it used to be called Sevy slide, but now they call it castle gray skull, the portage, mm-hmm. uh, the new portage. And, uh, that's an interesting little sidebar. I remember the first time, coming down in there after that had happened. I had no idea that it had happened and we're paddling across that lake and the trees are sticking up out of it. And I, we looked up at the wall and I was like blown away by the sheer volume of rock that had fallen off of that cliff and mm. create, created that rapid. Yeah. And it used to be a relatively straightforward, you know, class four plus not really? even the four four minus rapid that you just sort of ran, yeah. And uh, interesting to see those things evolve over time. Yeah. Anyway, we we got there and there was no question about any of us stepping up or running it. That rock is really jagged in there and nasty. It looked super, it looked super ugly. Yeah. I've seen a couple of videos of some young guns running it, and I I think that uh, they don't have their gear in their boat for one thing. Is they they're they're making the boat pop really well as they pop off there. And <laughs> I usually, I usually carry way too much for the Jarvis Bruno. And, and yeah, we were obviously there. We were on there for the bachelor party and you had, the, the directions were loaded up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had, you had the luxury boat going and you're not going to yeah. make hoppy path, fast, quick moves at all. No. So, so no, we, we made that portage and paddled on down and, uh, the plan was just to sort of play it by ear, but we passed Cougar Creek, which is one of my favorite camps. And, um, we stopped and I, we got out and walked around. I go, Oh yeah, this is a nice camp. We'll have to do this one some other time. And it has a really nice side hike. So you can go way the heck up Cougar Canyon and get up to a, a beautiful waterfall up in there. That's, that's full of chalk stones. And if you bring a rope, a short rope, you can climb around that and go even farther up that Canyon Canyon. And it's pretty neat up there. I've, I've found some pretty big Cougar tracks up in there and some bone piles and some fresh, fresh scat piles that are, they're like, Oh, there's some large felines living up in this area. And there's, there's elk bones and yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, anyway, we got down to the next camp, um, that was still above Jarbage falls, but it was not that far above Jarbage falls and, uh, had a great evening, beautiful weather. Um, I think that was, that was the, the camp where I fell in love with their chairs and I didn't, I hadn't brought a chair on the trip. <laughs> yeah. They had, uh, they had these Helinox chairs and 
they were just magic as I kept lifting them up and seeing how comfortable they were. There was, I had, I had chair envy in a big way. And um, I was, as I was sitting on the, you know, the deck of my code and re realizing that I had to keep putting a piece of my clothing underneath it to have anywhere close to the comfort that they had. Uh, <laughs> but we just, we had a great evening that evening and uh, perfect weather that night. Got up the next day, beautiful weather once again, for the most part, and uh, put on and we knew what was ahead of us. And here's Dave. And, you know, we've had a good trip so far on the dry bridge. We're on that last camp. This particular camp is right above a bunch of continuous class four that leads into garbage falls. Right. And that's kind of how many times have you done this run up at this? Oh, probably seven times, and I've led it a couple times. And you know, I'm really comfortable knowing exactly where Jarbage Falls is. You know, there's this massive house-sized rock, this big brown rock that right. stares at your face for a couple hundred yards. I mean, it's impossible to miss. So I thought. So that particular camp, I mean, the challenge is, you know, you pull out of the eddy and you are right in some, you know, serious class four. And uh, we we're pulling out of the eddy and John Hyman has been leading the last couple of days. Um, I've been in the middle. Rick's been in the back. And John looks at me and says, take it away, Dio. And I'm like, OK, I'm comfortable leading. I've done this a bunch. I know where Jarbage Falls is. Let's get going. And so. I'm leading. Um, I've got Rick behind me. John's playing tail gun. And we're just paddling this class four. And I'm thinking about Jarbage Falls. We had a good, a good plan, a good idea. Um, but Dave, I thought, had been the year before. And so I said, well, I, I'll let you go first. And um, he said, fine, that's great. And we were just sort of bebopping down through that busy water that starts to build up as you get closer and closer to Jarbage Falls. It does. That's kind of the most fun, challenging part of the upper Jarbage is that about mile and a half before you get to the falls itself, mm -hmm. really. And um, yeah, we were making great time, beautiful day. And we came down into that section where there's there actually the trees are pretty tight on the river. And it does get a little bit hard to sort of see farther down. And Dave popped through between two rocks and ferried left fairly quickly. And there's there's a large stone. Um, the big mistake I was making was not slowing things down as we were getting closer to Jarbage Falls and gathering in eddies and talking about it and doing some more eddy hopping. We were just reading and running. And it's crazy because it was such an incredible lapse of situational awareness. And that day, I don't know if the lighting was different, the shading was different, this rock that so clearly uh, designates garbage coming up. You know, it's, it's this big brown rock. And that day, for whatever reason, it wasn't brown. It was really black. And I didn't even see it back of my mind, I know that the bells should have been going off for me even. It had been three years, but it still is like, I think we're getting close. And about that time, Rick had it flipped over in this little tiny just space between two rocks. And 
Dave, I think, had turned around and seen that, and I saw it. So we were really focused on making sure that he rolled up. And he rolled up with no problem, and Dave just sort of drifted out of my sight to the left, and I sort of paddled a little bit faster to catch up and make sure that he was okay, and he sort of took off following Dave faster than I was prepared for. I didn't ever get a chance to even talk to him. And I sort of caught a squirrely little little bit of the same water that I think flipped him over. And I just hesitated for a second. I spun back to the river right, faced upstream, looked over my right shoulder, and they were gone. And here's Dave again. So we're approaching Jarbage Falls. And I'm still thinking Jarbage Falls is probably 15, 20 minutes away. No, it was right there. And... Um, there's this little ledge above it, about 100, 200 feet. And over on the right side is where you generally are to run this section and for this particular feature. And there's kind of a weird little rock in there that, you know, tips people over on a brace and people panic because they know, you know, the takeout is right there. And sure enough, I, I, I go through this and I still don't realize we're at Jarbage Falls. And even John Heinemann, who is playing tailgun, he doesn't recognize it for what it is either. So it made me feel a little better that I wasn't so blind. But um, my buddy Rick, who's right behind me, flips on that little feature. And right now I'm going by the big rock. I mean, I could probably touch it. And I don't realize I'm going by the big rock. Oh, and I'm man me and I see my mate upside down. I'm like, oh my gosh, Rick, you got to hit your roll. We got some class four coming up. Jarbage Falls is like not far below us. You know, you got to hit that roll. And the takeout, Eddie, is right in front of me. And I don't see it for what it is. And I go around the corner and I look at this rapid and I'm like, man, I do not remember this class four being this steep and this big. And I'm like, my gosh, you know, Rick is going to have a tough time getting through this right side up. And we've got Jarbage Falls down below. (laughs) Well, no, it was Jarbage Falls. That's the reason it was so steep and so big. And I still have not clued in and I'm just paddling this thing. Well, Rick gets, you know, tipped on the first feature and gets slammed upside down, hits his hand really hard, loses his paddle, swims immediately. He's swimming all of Jarbage Falls. Did you have any awareness when that started or were you just dealing with? No, no, I'm just paddling this class four that just seems way bigger than I remember. Yeah. And then finally I get down to the big like rock in the center that's about two thirds of the way down and I hit it sideways, and then I spin around it backwards in a stern stall, and um, and then I lose my brace, and I'm upside down, and I'm getting bludgeoned. Ugh. And I don't have the patience that I had as a younger man when I'm getting bludgeoned. <laughs> and I go for an onside roll, and I miss it, and I get hit on the head again on the shoulder, and I miss another onside roll. And as funny as it is, this particular season, my offside is stronger than my onside. But I didn't go there. I pull the plug and I swim. Ugh. So and I'm hanging on to my paddle. 
because after all, it's a class four rapid and garbage balls <laughs> down below, and I'm not going to lose my paddle. No big deal. And I end up over on the left where we typically put back in after we've done the portage. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, that class four just kicked my ass. And I'm walking back up the looker's right, which is the river left that you're usually portaging. John, meanwhile, poor John Heinemann, because he's been involved in a fatality before on a whitewater trip. And, you know, he's pulling into that eddy going, I cannot follow these guys. Because he's like, oh, my God, David went around the corner. And Rick, like a lemming, followed him. And he's thinking, oh, my gosh, I, I got to get out. And he's praying that he doesn't come across one or two fatalities. And back to John. And it was literally in that moment that I recognized what I've always called the entry rock. It's just this big sort of nondescript, ugly rock in the middle of the river. It's almost like a wall. And I went, oh, shit, this is it. And I expected to see them sitting in the tiny eddy right there. And they were not there. And I didn't even, I didn't even have time to hit a whistle or all, all of a sudden my heart rate went up. 50 beats a minute. And I was like, they went into the, and, and I realized a couple of things. I was like, okay, they're both good paddlers. They hopefully know where they, where they are. And they know that they've a, missed the most, most critical eddy, which is not very big to begin with, but it's that eddy at the top that you basically have to drive up onto the shore, grab a hold of what's there, get out of your boat, move your boat and really catch the next guy as he comes in especially at the higher flows I was used to. I was actually, mm. when I pulled into the eddy, I was surprised at how much room there was there. It was actually pretty easy for me to get out of my boat. But I looked downstream immediately. I wanted to see them, you know, like hugging the rocks on the left side. And there was nobody inside. They were gone. I, I didn't oh, wow. see anything. Then at that moment, I saw Rick's boat just basically upside down in the air and it was it was at least five feet out of the water and i just was i was like oh my god oh my god and he was well down into the drop and i mean he, he, I, was, I know what happened he hit that center chalk stone and just went straight up and it must have just caught him on an edge one way or the other because he was rolling in the air he was flipped completely upside Whoa. down that. and all I did was just think to myself, please don't let either one of them die. I know that this is not going to turn out great, but it could turn out better than we think it's going to. But please just don't let either one of these guys die. And I started ripping all my rescue gear out of my boat. I wasn't going to follow them. I, I thought that was completely irrational. You know, there's no point putting all three of us in danger for me to try and chase either one of them through that drop. Right. So I grabbed... I grabbed my lap bag, I grabbed my pin kit, and I grabbed my throw bag. And I started hoofing it down over that gnarly root tree that's been there for, it's been there ever since I've run the Jarbage Bruno. You have to kind of mm-hmm. crawl your way through those roots to mm-hmm. get to where the trail gets better. And mm-hmm. I stood up on it, I started standing up on rocks, just looking downstream. And I didn't see anything, nobody. I was, I could see almost to the bottom of the drop. And I saw nothing. 
So again, all I was just, I was, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I was just, I was basically just going, please don't let either one of them be dead. I can handle yeah. injuries. I can handle lost gear. I can handle a lot of things, but I'm not prepared to have one of these guys, you know, be a fatality here at this point in time, based on just us not paying attention. That was really what it came down to is we were yeah. all, wow. I think with David and I, especially, you know, having run it numerous times, both of us and, coming into that space and just not recognizing the two most telltale signs, that big rock in the middle of the river. It's just, it was setting off bells in my head and I still didn't realize how close we were. Hmm. And it's amazing that three years time that that can happen. And, you know, you're just sort of going, well, I guess we know where we are. It kind of was almost a little too trusting of the guy in front of you, you know, you're just like, well, we're just, we're all making good time and everything's going well. And all of a sudden we were in it, but back to trying to, yeah, just sort of keep it under control. And Cause that, that rapid is like, not only is it a big class five rapid, but it, you know, at the bottom, it looked pretty civvy. So it was, it was, it had some fairly significant hazards in it as well. And I've come down into that. We've twice come into it into other parties already in trouble. So that was in the back of my mind as well. We came into a, uh, a non-commercial raft trip that had a badly pinned raft over on the right side under what I call the coffin rock. Mm. It's about a third of the way down from the entry. And they had normally the rafts kind of figure out a way to bang their way down the left side. Okay. And somehow this had gotten shot way over to the right and the entire stern of the raft was pinned underneath the coffin rock and there were two people on the front of the raft and one of them had a hold of a rope the rope was strung all the way across the river but this was a situation where they were i mean they were going to be there a long time probably several hours and we ended up helping them um but i had i had that in the back of my mind and we had come down on another trip and there was a swimmer in the middle of the river on a rock and he had lost his boat and we ended up finding that boat. So both of those previous incidents were sort of rising up out of the back of my mind at the same time as I'm running down the shore, looking for gear, looking for people. And literally I came around the second sort of like large jumble of lava rock and almost at the bottom of the drop, really where things sort of start mellowing out. And on the other side of the river, sitting in his fire engine red dry suit, looking pretty dejected is Rick. And I'm just like, oh, my God, he's okay. He's out of the water. And, you know, I give him, give him the freaking, are you okay, heads up sign. And he kind of takes a second and gives me a sort of a half-hearted tap. And I'm like, oh, all right, well, maybe we have some, some issues that are, that are not apparent to me right now but we still have another problem i still have not put eyes on dave at this point Mm. i had no boat no dave neither boat and i this is the other we'll get we can come back to this but i've got eyes on him and he's okay he's out he's completely out of the water sitting on shore so i'm like okay one down so i keep going downstream and literally another 30 40 yards at most 
Dave pops up from behind some rocks and he is, yeah, I'm like, he's standing up and he's walking. So, so I'm, I'm, my heart rate's starting to come back down just a little bit. I know. I felt so bad for putting him in that position. So he's walking down river left. I'm walking up and, um, I come to, there's a plank that spans a couple boulders. It spans a gap. And I see the plank. And then I'm like, oh, my God. I'm, I'm now starting to realize, really? And John, he sees me. He's like, Dio, I can't believe you missed the eddy. And, I mean, my heart, my stomach, I mean, I, you know, I felt like puking. I mean, what have I done? I mean, I've led one of my closest friends into a really significant rapid, and I may have killed him. And then we see Rick, and he's on river right, and he's standing on the bank. He's bleeding. His hand's bleeding. I mean, he's just gotten worked. Then he's gotten recirculated in a hole, and he's ended up in this really nasty eddy on river right that's kind of a ledge and he's hanging on to a branch and he's able to get himself out my boat's gone it's on its way to the bruno his boat's pinned in the middle of the rapid well you know he's an ex um firefighter he's a former chief and i mean he's used to this kind of stuff and but he's the one that's been injured Meanwhile, I'm kind of in shock because I just about led a buddy into his death and and I'm still spinning because I just can't believe this lack of situational awareness. And I just, you know, didn't even see Jarbage Falls. So, or the rock that signifies it. And so, you know, we had to do a rescue and got him a throw bag and we had to do a pendulum, get him across the river. And now we've got to try to get his boat. Now it's time to assess obviously the uh, both of them are breathing both of them are out of the river nobody's pinned and okay what do we have left how much gear do we have so that, that's also in the in the middle of nowhere with we're taking the two boats missing yeah and we've got we've got one guy on the opposite side of the road of the river too and <clears throat> so dave and i reconnoiter and talk that over and we figure out the best thing to do is just to heave a bag over and get him to do a strong swimmer across to us and he's a big guy he must weigh 240 at least he's a he's a large he's a stout former fireman and he's he's fit and strong but he's big and uh we swung him over and it was clear even during that time that he he wasn't 100 percent, and we can tell he had some things going on so once we got him to that side of the river with us um he basically did a self-assessment and he's a fireman paramedic uh, you know, he's got tremendous medical background and experience and he basically mm-hmm. just read off what he thought was wrong. And I, I think if I remember right, he thought he possibly had a broken hand. He was pretty sure he had two or uh, two cracked ribs and he wasn't that unsure that he didn't have a cracked femur at that time. Mm-hmm. He was, he was pretty messed up. He was having trouble standing on two feet, um, was really wincing, bending over. Um, he, he was, he was, uh, flexing his hand, uh, and there was a pretty good knot growing on the hand, uh, at the time. Um, I think this is, a, was this your metacarpal here? 
right behind the, the index uh, finger. Um, he had taken a, a really good hit there. Um, but for the most part, you know, he was, again, he was breathing and didn't have any head injuries. Uh, it, it all seemed to be lower, lower extremity damage. Um, and obviously we didn't want to strip him out of his dry suit right then and, and check his leg. And he was like, well, it's, you know, I'm putting weight on it. It hurts like hell, but it's, it's not, it's not a, a fractured femur to the point where it's displaced or anything, but he was, yeah. he was definitely, it's not going to open up an artery or something like that. No, which I guess he, would be the big concern. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, he he was was very matter of fact about it, but he was also clearly in a lot of pain. And so at that point in time, um, we started going over our options. And you know, first of all, first thing we did was talk about, you know, is this the, are we at a point where we need to hit a, a spot an in reach or whatever? And, um, we were down two boats. We had three, three paddlers. Uh, we had two paddles. We were missing a paddle. Dave had his, I still had mine. Um, we were talking about you know, how bad is it? What can we do? So, well, you know, we need to look for the boats for one thing. We need to, to see if, you know, we can depend upon maybe the possible kindness of strangers, just the pure dumb luck of other people being on the river. It's a pretty nice weekend. You never know. There might be people in front of us. Might We know there are people behind us for sure, because there were people getting ready at the put in um, when we were. So we knew that they were still behind us. And, um, obviously there was you guys, we didn't know that you were there. Um, but the first thing that both of them realized was that they, they both had, uh, you know, rescue devices in reaches or spots, whichever they had, and that both of them were in their boats. Neither one of them had one in their life jacket. I don't even have one, so I have no room to talk, but I thought it was kind of funny. It's like, uh, okay, so we, we have two uh, emergency rescue devices, but we lost both of them in the river. And uh, so there, there was a chuckle about that. So we, we were back to sort of having to fend for ourselves again right away. And I said, well, I'm going to go get my boat and uh, start portaging. And because that's the most important thing is to get us all back together on the downstream side of this rapid. And I was walking back up to get my boat and somehow his boat appeared in the middle of the river. It was huh. literally upright cockpit, upright floating in the middle of that rock pile out in the middle of the river, like below the, the, the big chalk stone, the, the nasty part of the drop. And it had made it that far. And I don't know where it came from because I swear it wasn't there when I was running down looking for those guys, because it was, it was parallel to the current. It was bobbing and it was hung up on a rock. And I turned around and whistled to them and they kind of made their way up to me. We took a look at it and we made a, made a plan. I said, I think I can get the boat. I think I can paddle in above it, get into that little tiny eddy between those two rocks, get out of my boat and drop over the side and walk right straight to it. And, we're talking about it and I'm going back up to get my boat. And Heinemann's very calm throughout all this. And he's like, you know what? There's kind of a garage in this Island of rocks upstream of where the boat's pinned. I can paddle into that garage, dry dock my boat. I can get out. We can get, 
a carabiner and a line onto a hard point, and we we got this boat. Because, you know, there's three of us, and we have one boat. And we're in the most remote canyon in in Florida. Yeah. Lots of lessons learned in this experience, too, because, you know, I have a spot. Rick, the firefighter who swam, has an in-reach. Mm-hmm. Are those on our bodies? No, they're in our lap bags. Yeah. Serious. Doesn't do you much good. That point. Yeah. You know, John Hyman's not carrying one. Hmm. So we can't, yeah. we can't initiate a rescue anyway, because, right? Sure. That's a stupid move. So anyway, we're just getting ready to start this boat rescue and this boat oscillates and rips off the rock and it's on its way downstream. Well, and you know the terrain on river left, you're not moving down the left bank quickly. No, right. All scree slopes. All kinds of places. Littered littered with rattlesnakes everywhere. Break a tib, fib, or even break a finger, right? So, Off it goes. And we're just, you know, we're throwing expletives. And so the situation has just got worse. Um, And so John, I mean, John's a big elk hunter. He walks in this kind of train all the time. And um, I, I came probably close to maybe breaking a femur, but I don't realize it because, you know, it hasn't set in yet, but I've got this big hematoma because I'm still shocky and adrenaline full and, so John's like, okay, let's put Rick, he's the most injured, in my boat, and he'll paddle downstream. Uh, we've got about four-plus miles to walk to get to the confluence with the Bruno, where there may be some form of human life, maybe, you know, because yeah. people do put on there when they're doing rafting trips because they're not rafting the garbage. There's at least a road that comes down there. There's a road that comes in, but it is a month. It is a Sunday night. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we've got to get to at least get to the confluence. Um, So we start walking and there's places where you have to go way high above the river because you get cliffed out. I mean, there's at times like when you saw John, he was probably four or 500 vertical feet above the river. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. We're slowly making our way down. Rick doesn't see his paddle for one thing. And so he passed it and we saw it, but we couldn't communicate oh, with no. him because he was so far away. We had a, um, a signal, you know, two really loud whistles from Rick means that he came upon a boat. Okay. Like one of our two boats. And so this goes on about an hour and I'm really starting to slow down because my, my leg is starting to seize up. Oh. And then we get the two whistles and it happens to be a place where we can actually get down to the river's edge. Hmm. And Rick is like, guess what, Dio? It's your lucky day. It's your boat. <laughs> okay, so now we have two boats, but there's three of us. And I've got my boat, and I'm coming back down, getting ready to, to I have my gear out of it, and literally the boat floats free. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Classic. It just and it was and it was gone, and it was like, well, I guess we're screwed again. And, and it wasn't like we took any 
un, undue time fit. Like I knew that, that it was in a tenuous position and that I really needed to, like, if I was going to try and to get the vote, I had, it had happened fast. So I was, you know, I, I put good effort into getting my boat back down to the point where I, I felt comfortable ferrying out there and was literally like not quite putting my spray skirt on, but I was setting my boat down and the goddamn thing just takes off. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> we, we, we almost had two guys in boats. So anyway, that's, that's, the boat, that sounds like a familiar story. I feel like that's happened to me. It's, numerous it's, times. Yeah. it's happened to me many actually several times yeah different rescue scenarios for sure i've seen that happen um but <clears throat> anyway um at that point in time we had to make some hard decisions we had no way to, to notify anybody so we had to make time and distance down river we had one boat between three guys and it made no sense for me to paddle i was completely undamaged dave was reasonably mobile and Rick was not, he, he was not able to walk and the terrain, you obviously have navigated the river. You've seen the terrain, you know how difficult it is in there. Oh, yeah. Um, so I said, look, this is how it's going to go. You're going to get in my boat. You're going to take my paddle and you're going to paddle down the river slowly and leapfrog with us and try and keep us, you know, in sight. And we're going to make the best time we can eventually our goal is to get to the bridge at the Bruno put in. I mean, to, that's, that's, if we make it great, if we don't, then we'll figure something out. But basically we need to go down river. There's no point going up and there wasn't really much arguing about it. It was just like, this is, this makes the most sense. I'm the most mobile. Dave's the next most mobile. You're not that mobile. You should be the paddler. You can float gently and catch eddies and try and keep up with us or we can try and keep up with you and we'll see how far we get in an hour, in two hours. And wow. so we, so yeah, we re-outfitted the boat so it would fit him, got him in the boat, made sure he was lucid enough and, and was comfortable paddling along. Cause he was still pretty shook at this point in time. He definitely, you could tell he was a little shell shocked, um, but he was, he, he'd been through a lot before he's obviously had, enough drama and trauma in his life and he, he was handling it well considering how damaged he was um so he took off and we took off and we weren't making great time but we were making decent time down at river level uh just kind of scrambling along and um dave was obviously favoring one leg he had taken some damage too um and we were making okay time but then we decided to go up a little ways and literally no sooner had we decided to go up than we looked across the river and Rick's paddle was floating in an eddy on the right hand side. Hmm. And we were screaming and he had already passed that point. He oh, did no. a long pass. So <clears throat> that was life. We regrouped. That, that must have been the paddle that we found, right? That was the paddle that you guys found. Yeah. So we sort of got back down to the river level with him and had a little chat. And, and that, that was my first moment of a little bit of frustration because we had had a pretty solid conversation about don't get out in front of us and try and keep us in sight. And we'll try and keep you in sight. Stay to the river right side and try and use, you know, what little bit of declination you can to get eyeballs on us once in a while. And we, 
we might have been able to communicate that to him, but maybe not too. So it was just, it was just a random point where maybe a little frustration about the whole situation sort of came to a head. And I was like, damn, we, we could have had that piece of equipment, but that's life. And we didn't have a boat to paddle it anyway. So <laughs> at that point in time, so, um, we did better at that point and he got out a little bit in front of us, but he was keeping us in sight. And all of a sudden he disappeared into some thick, thick brush and he was on our side of the river and we heard a whistle Ooh. and that's when we actually beelined it back down to the river and there was Dave's boat. Oh. So all, and it was sitting up on a rock. That, that's huge. So there was a party in front of us and they had managed to fish it out of the river, empty go. it out and push it up on a rock. And, and it was in enough of, you know, it was, it was high enough that you could see it from the, the water. And I think walking, we would have seen it without him seeing it too. It was one of those, they, they thought long and hard about what they did um, and did a good job of placing the boat where it was going to be seen one way or the other. And that, was like a spirit lifter. Like you wouldn't believe it's oh, like, sure. Spot. Okay. And, that, and now you had a spot device too. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we had the spot and we discussed the idea of maybe using it at that point, you know, and it's like, well, I don't think anybody's really ready to cave in yet. We, it's not, it's not over until it's over until you're, you're absolutely, you're, you come in here on your own and you expect to get out the other end on your own, you know, unless it really, really goes sideways. And I said, look, I'll stay on shore. I'll, I'll keep walking. You guys are definitely not good. Lower extremity wise, you should be the paddlers. And at that point in time, um, I didn't, I still didn't have a paddle. Um, all I was really carrying was my lap bag. I got watered up. And I said, let's just try and see how far we can go tonight. And then we'll get to where we can get. And then we'll figure it out. We'll talk again. And that was when it actually started getting really difficult to stay at water level, though. It was, things got really cobbled up down there. And I looked up and I started climbing. And then I found a line along the cliff band at the top that wasn't nearly as difficult for quite a while. And was making decent time up there with the exception of looking over every rock for rattlesnakes every single time I took a step. <laughs> I mean, this, this must be around the time when we encountered your party because we that saw, was... we saw you, I mean, that was the first thing we saw was you up in the scree slope, just like with your, with your, you know, flat <laughs> bag in your hand and your dry suit walking around. And we just kind of looked at each other with wide eyes and we were like, what the hell? You're like, what's in the that middle idiot of nowhere doing? In, in rattlesnake country with, you know, <laughs> rattlesnakes everywhere. What is going on here? That was, and, and it was like, it was, I turned around and saw what you guys had like 10 people in your party too, right? I think we had a dozen, yeah. A dozen. It was a lot of boats coming down the river. And I was just overjoyed. And I think I started blowing my whistle. And it was like, I was waving. I was like, look at this. And I was trying to point out there's, you know, two other guys down there. But I, I saw you stop and grab the paddle, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I had, you know, vision for miles up there. I could see a long ways. Um, but I, so then I was like, oh, shit. Now I have to go all the way back down to the river. <laughs> 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 I, was, I wasn't actually that excited about it but i had just passed 
a pretty nasty briar patch up against the the cliff band that was was horrible anyway so i was down on the scree anyway and i looked down this ridge and it looked decent enough and i hiked all the way back down to the river and you guys had already given them back the paddle right at that point Mm -hmm. you had had gone on i think even yeah we had we had offered help you know we were like hey we got everything you know we got extra you know sleeping bags we got tents we got what do you need you know we got we got spots galore like what what do you need and uh they were i mean i I think at the time we were kind of like, oh, those guys were kind of grumpy, you know, like I, I think now, now hearing it played back, it, it, it's very clear why they were grumpy. And oh, they not, were, I'm sure I, they were both in quite a bit of pain. I think they were, yeah. uh, they, you know, once the adrenaline wears off, then, then your evaluation becomes like, not, not only am I, I'm, 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 I'm traumatized, but I'm also physically damaged and now the physical damage really starts sort of coming to the forefront I'm, I'm i'm assuming yeah that that the throbbing was pretty good right about then and they still were trying to, to to get down the river and keep me in sight and there was a lot going on at that point in time and then um so i i came back all the way down to the river and at that point in time we didn't need three paddles so i took I mean, I took my paddle as well, which I was kind of happy to have it. It was handy as, you know, potential as, a, as a, to shoo snakes away and everything sure. else, a uh, little bit of a walking stick, but I was still clearly going to make better time by going back up above the lower scree. And the, the, I mean, you know, the, to the folks that are not, have never seen the Jarvis Bruno, it's like, it's basically like walking over the surface of, of a, the side of a, a volcano that's gone off and cooled and it's lava like chunks of lava anywhere from sort of loaf of bread to car sized all sort of jumbled together and it's super sharp rock it's not fun to walk around on some of it is not balanced very well you you think it is you step up on one and it starts wobbling right away so there was a a bench that was mostly sagebrush maybe some cactus there were a few prickly pears up there but i got up on that bench and found a game trail uh, mm. it was just covered with sheep poop and elk poop oh, nice. and was making pretty good time um staying on the game trails up there and they were floating as best they could and catching every river right eddy and we would maintain eyeball contact and hand signals and i was like yeah i'm okay there's nothing you know you guys are making time i'm making time um Again, my legs were, were in great shape, so I wasn't having any difficulty moving as fast as I could possibly move, which still wasn't very fast in that terrain. And I was up on that bench, and I don't know where you guys were at that point in time, but that storm rolled in, and it laid down on me up there like nobody's business. I saw two lightning strikes hit the dirt and blow dirt into the sky probably 50 feet, and it was i could feel that sort of staticky feel in the air and this was at this point in time we were about three quarters of a mile maybe above the confluence with the west fork of the bruno Mm -hmm. and those guys got to the to the point the delta at the west fork and actually got out of their boats and started walking up to where i was to see if i was okay because it had really it the lightning strike the lightning strikes were it was there was i mean there was no gap between the flash and the bang it was that i was more scared 
or about 15 minutes there than earlier in the day when all hell was breaking loose <laughs> because uh, well, yeah. this is going to be bad. They're going to have to explain that basically he was up there walking because we had a river accident, but he died because he got struck <laughs> by lightning. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was, I was, we were, I mean, we were past the confluence at that point. We were in that next canyon, which was absolutely spectacular. And I mean, for it was being in there during a lightning storm was even more spectacular. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were nice and safe. But believe me, every one of us were thinking about you up there hiking in the scree with this huge storm rolling in and the temperature dropping 20 degrees. And, and I had just enough, just enough metal on me. I think I was a little there. I had like half a dozen carabiners, you know, and yeah. a few things like that. So this probably isn't the brightest place to be right now. And I just, I took about maybe two minutes and I laid as flat as I could on the ground and it passed over. It hailed and rained a little bit, but the lightning strikes were as close as I think I've ever been to, to big lightning strikes. So you just felt that ozone staticky feel in the air. Wow. And I watched the dirt fly. It, it went 30, 40 feet in the air. At least it was crazy. It's crazy. I've never Ooh, seen anything like that. That was a new one for me too. I've, I've seen it strike trees, but I'd never seen it just strike open dirt like that. So that was weird. <clears throat> but after it passed, um, I got up and kept walking down. Uh, I knew that I, I could see, you know, this next valley. And I said, oh, I think that's the West Fork. So I think we're pretty close. We're, we're doing good. Everything's all right here. Um, and those guys had gotten out of their boats. And when we're, we're walking up just the ridgeline right on the upstream side of the West Fork. Here's Dave. And John Hyman, being the kind of guy he is, he's like, I'm going to continue walking. You two take the boats and just Eddie hop down the right side and keep me in sight. This is going to take a while because what we could paddle in 60 minutes is probably going to take four or five hours to walk. Now, at this point, you've recovered one of your satellite devices. Um, my spot, but that's an older spot and you can't send messages on the fly, like Bluetoothing to your phone, like you can with an inReach. There's predetermined messages that you've created before the trip. Like, Hey, you know, we're halfway and all's good, or we're at the takeout and all's good. Or there's the $20,000 button for the yeah. SOS. Right? I mean, at this, at this point, was there a talk about that $20,000 no, button? Whatsoever. Not whatsoever. We're, you know, I mean, there's no broken femur and there's nobody that's really hurt and Rick can paddle. And so we start making our way down river and, you know, we're all sweaty and we're in dry suits. And then the clouds come in, as you mentioned earlier, and it unleashes on us. Now, John Hyman is grateful because he's walking in a dry suit and it's like in the 80s. It could have been in the hundreds, yeah. but it was in the 80s. So we were lucky. And he's like, oh, my gosh, thank you, rain. Meanwhile, you know, we've sweated so much inside our dry suits. We're like shivering, slowly making our way down the river. And then we get to the West Fork of the Bruno and it's running really low, but he still has to cross it. It's probably only like 30 feet wide and it's not yeah. running hardly, you know, any flow. Um, and there's a, a, a stand of trees up on the river left of the West Fork of the Bruno, the bridge and the road is another mile down river from where the garbage comes in. Okay. Okay. So we've got three guys, two boats. That means we've got two sleeping bags, two sleeping pads, two tents. 
And so that stand of trees, we're going to those trees. Because, you know, we've had lightning. I mean, there's lightning landing around John. You know, it's pouring rain. So, and then just getting to those trees. Oh, my God, the, the vegetation on the river left of the West Fork. I mean, it took us like 40 minutes to get through like 30 feet of brambles and so dense, thick. You know, I mean, I'm just cursing. We're so over this experience. We just we just need to get underneath that tree and just like regroup. Um, we get to the tree. It's a place where ATVs come down, and there's a bunch of uh, chainsawed wood. And you know, it's the time of year. You're not going to start a fire out there, and it's pouring rain. I mean, you're not going to start a brush fire, right? So yeah. we're like, we are we are going to have a fire. And we, you know, we built this big 15 by 15 foot fire, this massive <laughs> oh, fire. Yeah. You know, Rick's getting pretty shocky and, you know, pre-hyperthermic. I mean, he's cold. He's shivering. We got to get him in dry clothes, get him into a bag on top of a pad in a shelter, and then get some food into him. This takes quite a while, but finally, you know, he's dry. He's warm. Um. John has enough dry clothing and rain clothing. This is what we're going to do. We're going to put John in his tent um, on top of a sleeping pad. Because remember, we, only, we got two of everything, but we have three people. Sure. We got to get through the night. Put him on a sleeping pad in his dry clothes, in his rain gear, in his tent. And then I've got kind of a really small big agnes it's it's a two-person tent it's really a one-person tent and we put the injured guy on the other sleeping pad in a bag in my tent and then i lie down next to him on the ground but i've got a bag it's okay as i as i recall it was raining on and off that entire all night long all night long and we had a mockingbird that was like 10 feet over our heads mocking <laughs> us. Oh my God. That, you know, they're big birds and they have all these different songs and sounds. And this thing mm-hmm. for like three or four hours is just mocking us, you know, until finally <laughs> I have a temper tantrum and I get out of the tent, you know, and I throw a rock at it <laughs> screaming and I scared it away. So now it's like a hundred yards away, still mocking us, but at least we can maybe kind of fall asleep. Um, it was a great test for me because I had a brand new hip that was um, like 11 weeks old. So a good test sleeping on the ground with a brand new hip. Yeah. We wake up, it's Bluebird. And at that point in time, it was raining pretty steadily. And it was not warm. It had cooled off substantially. And we had a little powwow. And I said, well, what do you want to do? I said, we, it's going to get dark in about an hour, hour and a half. It's We're, we're coming into the to needing to make some hard decisions here. We need to stop for the night and we need to find a place to do it with what we have. And that was when I looked up the West Fork and I saw this just really beautiful stand of trees. And it looked like somebody had gone in there and intentionally hollowed out the underside under the branches. Hmm. And I said, well, you know, who knows? You never know. I mean, that four wheel drive trail comes all the way down to that point on that side of the, of the West Fork. And 
that's our spot. I don't care how we get there. Let's go there. And we'll make do with what we have under that canopy and, you know, lightning be damned. It's still, that's going to give us some shelter. And uh, then as, as they were walking back down to the boats, it, I came to the realization is like, Oh yeah, it's on the other side of the river. You still <laughs> the river. And <laughs> so, <laughs> you're kind of beeline behind them. And so, I'm going to have to swim the river. You guys need to go over the other side and just be, be, be ready for me. <laughs> uh, I can't remember if one of them took my paddle or if I swam across with my paddle, but I, I found a spot that was, it wasn't very wide. It wasn't that big a deal. And that time of year, the West Fork's not putting in much anyway. So it was pretty calm. So I just jumped in and swam across and they were, bow upstream waiting for me you know they would have caught me if i hadn't go, just swum in and grabbed a hold of the ridiculous vegetation on the other side and <clears throat> that I'm actually pretty, pretty happy to have your dry suit on at that point huh very yeah i i don't i mean i don't think i've ever done that trip without a dry suit and it's always sort of a mandatory piece of gear to just have extra dry clothes in camp anyway yeah but I swam, swam the river and um, got in on the other side into what turned out to be just this horrendous thicket of vegetation. And I had no idea that it was going to be as nasty as it was on that side of the river. We spent a good 30 minutes maybe crawling up through that stuff. It was terrible. It was absolutely awful. Pushing boats in front of us coming, walking up over the boats, pulling them from behind. Um, I remember at one point, Dave just sort of, I think he needed to let out some frustration and some steam. And he just was, was sort of yet out, let out this sort of primal scream yell. And I said, how bad is it up there, Dave? And he goes, it's awful. I've never dealt with anything like this. And it was, there was a cliff and it was a swamp below and we still had to climb about another 10 feet up through this just nasty thick like push your way through like grab a hold of two and like stuff your face through and then kind of wriggle your body through and then oh yeah there's a kayak that has to come with you um but we made it and got up on the bench and sure enough you could see the jeep tracks right there had come all the way down so we just dragged the boats up, started walking upstream then and found this stand of timber. And it was beautiful. It was not the most level spot on the planet, but it provided shelter and it gave us enough flat ground to put up two shelters. Um, we had, we only had two because we were still missing a boat at this point. Uh, and all of his gear, his tent, everything was in there. Uh, sleeping bag. So we were, we were stretching uh, gear for two between three guys. And uh, we sort of made a a reasonably equitable distribution. (laughs) (laughs) Not awesome for a rainy cold night either. But it wasn't bad. It really, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that bad. Um, I ended up giving them my sleeping bag and they gave me uh, one of the the small thermorests, air mattresses and, I just sort of kept all my gear on and I had a down coat and a few other things and just, I made a pretty pleasant night out of it by staying out as late as possible under a, a massive fire. I had this, like, I just built this rager. I didn't care anymore. It's like, it's, you know, <laughs> oh, it's yeah. like, 
all the rules go out the window then. Um, but I did, sure. I, and it was raining pretty hard. So you needed to keep it going anyway. Um, beautiful, beautiful fire. And at that point in time, they, it, 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 it had hit both of them really hard. I think they were just exhausted. I could tell that it was just, they'd hit bolt, hit the wall. They knew that we were going to, you know, make it down to the bridge at the very least. And, um, finally it was like, they needed as much rest as they could possibly get. And I ended up, um, giving them a fair number of, uh, my better drugs out of my first aid kit. Mm -hmm. And, um, they both, I hope, got some sleep that night. I don't, I don't think it was a perfect night of sleep for any of us, but they were able to to kind of crunch together and under the sleeping bags that were available and get a little better night's sleep than they might have without anything. Right. And we woke up the next morning. It was pretty decent weather, and mm-hmm. um, we were back in the same situation. Though we had three guys and only two boats, and we had at least another, I don't know, mile and a half to go, and that was the the scene again. I uh, didn't wear my dry suit that day though. I I'd let them carry that in, in one of the boats. <laughs> At least I was in a pair of shorts and just my life jacket at that point. Yeah, in time, which wasn't too to bad be said for that. If you're going to be hiking, <laughs> it wasn't bad. Um, and, and it was, it was funny. It was that hike that morning when I knew we were, we were this close, you know, I, I knew where the, the bridge was. And it was like, at that point in time, I had, had done a little, enough side hiking. I knew where the hot springs was and all of that stuff. So I was kind of pretty chipper and I was looking back at it at that point in time. I said, well, it's the first time I've ever gone for this long of a walk on a kayaking trip for one thing. <laughs> and I know that it's, it's, it hasn't turned out exactly as we really want it to, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm, I'm not actually having that bad of a time. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an impressive attitude i was kind of actually like you know we 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 took a lot of misfortune and made the best of it made the most of it and we hadn't hit a spot yet that was like i was we still hadn't had to call for the freaking cavalry which is always at the bottom of my list of things to do i've got to i've got to admit that night you know when we were kind of huddled by the cliff and it was raining and everyone was kind of warming back up once we got off the river we were all sort of looking up to the sky wondering if we were going to hear a helicopter that night coming by uh we had had no idea how it was going for you yeah i think at that point you know like we we knew that somehow we were we could get to the bridge and then your odds of actually running into somebody doing something with it's whether it's foolhardy driving just four-wheeling down there or whatever, you know, or actually bringing in a group of people to run the Bruno. We just, your odds go way up because that's, that's an access point then. Um, But so I'm hiking along and it's, it's a nice sunny day. We get down to the bridge or they got, they got there before I did. And um, we're sort of regrouping and looking at what we have. And we know that this is pretty much the end of the road for Rick. We, he's, he's not going further because the Canyon gets much steeper below there. And there's no way to do any kind of, you know, leapfrogging on foot or anything. If you're going from there down, you're in the water and that's the only yeah. way you're going. So we started trying to leave him as much gear as we could and yet still have gear to finish the trip. And we knew we were probably facing one more night in there somewhere for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, let's just take a walk and go down to the old put in 
because there's another spot down on the below the bridge on the river right side about a quarter mile down where they actually occasionally used to put people in on the river down there because that bridge is brand new i had never seen that before actually it used to be just this rundown old terrible thing that you could barely drive a motorcycle across <clears throat> so that's all kind of uh, transpired since 19 even um so we take a rick and i take a walk and go down over the side and we're in this thick brush and no boat we figured maybe somebody you guys you know had found the boat and pushed it up on shore and possibly left it there at the put-in um so we're like looking in every nook and cranny just in case just in case uh, we're a little dejected we're like okay this is good uh, John still got to walk down to the bridge. We're going to paddle down to the bridge. And maybe there's a chance there was a party putting on over the weekend and Rick's kayak is sitting there. Maybe. We get to the bridge. There's no kayak. So now what do we do? We're going to leave Rick there in my tent, my sleeping pad, my bag, food, some toilet paper, because it may take two days we don't know where his boat is that's got the inreach where we could get a message to somebody, particularly John Barker, who has the commercial outfit, commercial permit for the Jarvis Bruno, and he runs trips down there to, hey, can you go pick up our friend? We'll pay whatever necessary to go get him. It could take two days, right? So Because we got to go either get to the bottom of the river where we have cell phone, which is 40 miles, or we come across his boat somewhere and we can get to the inReach and send the same message. We're just about ready to leave Rick there to start a 40-mile day that's going to end with 5-mile rapid, which is the most difficult rapid on the Bruno. And that's going to be about 7.30 or 8 p.m. Yeah. After for, someone a long day. for someone who's hurt and had a horrible night's right? sleep, I'm sure. Yeah. And we hear a motor. And we're just like, no way. It's a Monday morning. What are the chances someone's coming in on one of the worst roads in the state of Idaho? The road to the Bruno. I've been hearing about it for 30 years. I mean, it is class five. It's such a terrible road. And sure enough, John Barker, his employee, is bringing in a guy who's doing a solo raft trip. And we, you know, we pull her aside as she approaches and we're like, hey, can you get this guy out of here? And she's like, oh, yeah, no problem. Okay, so that's solved. We have Rick and a ride taking him back to Bruno. Wait, what What, are, what are the chances there of someone actually being on that road? Is that like a once a week someone would come in there? No, that time of year, it's fairly frequent because Bruno is such a special place and raptors love it. Okay, um, but and they, and they like morning, they like that put in for the raft because then they skip all. the Well, it's not you know are. rafting the jar bridge as you can imagine is a difficult proposition. Sure, right that makes sense. Commercial yeah. people do it. Um, and they line their rafts or garbage falls. So okay, now I get to pack up my sleeping pad, and my bag, and my tent, and my food, and I get my toilet paper back, and we're sending Rick off to the Bruno. I mean, to the town of Bruno in this truck, and but we still. We're still determined to get out that day. So we're walking back up and literally you can hear this motor from uh, a fair distance off. You just hear this rawr, 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 
crawling down that horrendous road coming in. And I was like, I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, I think we're going to be okay. Music to your ears, huh? I think, I think actually things are going to be okay. Yeah. And we, well, we pretty much jogged as fast as Rick could. I mean, as damaged as he was, we stepped up the pace and got back up to the road literally right as one of um, Barker's gigantic off-road rigs was coming down with one guy to put nice. on for a solo trip. And he was, I think if I'm not mistaken, they, the, the shovel driver said he was going for like a six or seven day trip by himself from there down. Oh, wow. I don't know what his plan was, but anyway, the, so <clears throat> we worked it out and that's where he ended up leaving us. And he got a nice ride up that horrendous dirt road in a big off-road vehicle. And um, David and I regrouped, realized that we were a little short on food, uh, but we had everything we needed to, to be able to continue on downriver and got back together, pushed off. And literally went into the canyon and there was his boat stuffed yep. up on shore. And that was, you guys did that too, right? We found that one. Yep. So we pulled, we pulled it out, put it on shore. That was amazing. You know, and it was, it was at a point where there was nothing that could be done. You know, there, it wasn't going back up river. No. Rick wasn't coming back in. There was no way. <clears throat> so we just like sort of, like you said, that's a sheer walled Canyon. Once you go into there, there was not yeah. much maneuvering except in the river. Yeah. So we, we basically ransacked the boat for anything that he specifically told us to try and try and retrieve. Um, made sure that it was up above any kind of possible high water mark for that time of year mm -hmm. and <clears throat> pushed off and went on down river. And, oh no, we were there dealing with the boat when the two packer rafters showed up. And so we take off and then you paddle those flats and then the gates of Mordor kind of close in on the Bruno and you go through that gap. And now you're in the shoebox canyon. And once you go over that threshold, there's no going back. You're now committed to the Bruno. And not, I don't know, five minutes into that canyon, we see a red boat over on River Right. It's Rick's kayak. Someone has pulled it up into the willows. We're like, oh, okay, well... We got to deal with this stuff because he's got thousands of dollars worth of stuff in that boat. I mean, you know, the boat's a grand probably, but he's got a big Agnes tent. He's got his inReach. He's got his new Apple phone. He's got his new Apple watch. He's got, you know, $800 contact lenses and prescription glasses. <laughs> I mean, there's probably four grand in, in about that much stuff. I know. And we're going to get it for him. And then uh, we, so we pull the boat up. All the dry bags have failed. Even his watershed lap bag failed really i was blown away but all this electronic equipment is brand new and it's all pretty waterproof so all that expensive stuff was okay but everything else is absolutely soaked you know tent sleeping bag sleeping pad clothing food is destroyed and we have a magic marker and we write a sign on the bottom of the boat and stand it up against the cliff wall. So the sign is present and it just says, hey, you know, this is our boat. We know where it is. This is the date. Leave it here. We're going to be back in a week to get it. You know, here's a name and a phone number. 
And right then, Mike Kuriak and Brian Godaluski from Crouch and Driggs pull up in a couple Valkyrie pack rafts, the new pack raft by Alpaca. And the Valkyrie is just this amazing boat. You know, I don't know if you've seen it. Kevin, but I, I've, I've, I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard about it from a oh, number of man. people. And it is amazing. It's got rocker. It's got chimes. It weighs 14 pounds empty. My Jackson Nirvana weighs 54 pounds empty. Right. I can't, 40, I can't afford to that around garbage falls anymore at my age. I have to do it in senior citizen stages. <laughs> right so they pull up and it happens my but john hyman knows the guy from driggs what are you doing and you guys okay and we're like oh yeah it's too long of a story we don't want to get into it and and they're like well we'll be downstream having lunch you know at least stop when you get all this stuff dealt with and so we finish you know dealing with the boat and standing it up and we take off and we meet those guys and they're like, so Rick's okay. He's on his way to Bruno. And we're like, yeah. And they're like, well, why don't you guys spend the night with us and not paddle five mile rapid tonight at 7.30 or 8 p.m.? I mean, you don't have to be out tonight, right? And we're like, no, we don't have to be out tonight. That's a that's a much better idea. And, all, you know, and for me, the stress just went. Nice. Because I'm so stressed about what happened the day before and five mile rapid tonight when I'm tired and. And I was just like, Phew. so we yeah. find this great camp below Clover Creek and they start pulling stuff out of the Valkyries. This one guy pulls out a mandolin. <laughs> Another guy pulls out this panini grill for sandwiches. I, I, know, what's like, on your, okay, I know it's on your I Christmas a, list. I see a Valkyrie in my future for these multi-day <laughs> trips. And we ate like Kings and, and then we paddled out the next day and, yeah, that was and that was pretty interesting. We ended up paddling pretty much with them from there until we camped that night, and um, that was that was an eye-opening experience. I mean, we were at that point in time, David and I, the, the anxiety level had gone fairly far back down. We were sort of, you know, starting to have fun again. I think a little bit anyway. We were concerned about Rick. I was very concerned about his, his injuries more than anything and uh, hoping against all hope that, that he wasn't going to come away with any broken broken bones at all, um, but that at least he was going to get out and get into town where he could seek some medical attention if needed. Sure. Um, but we still had to finish the trip. I mean, neither one of us talked about um, riding out on the, on the rig. I, there wasn't that... I, that discussion never came up, at least not good. to my recollection. So D- Dave was feeling good enough that you know he was, he yeah. was injured, but he could paddle just fine. Yeah. And I think he felt, yeah, it felt like we needed to finish the trip. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So, uh, but anyway, um, these two guys in, in Packerhouse showed up right as we were sort of finishing up with the boat and they offered to paddle with us uh, the rest of the way down, or at least as, as far as camping that night. And, um, that's what we did. Uh, we got down. Um, oh, I forget the name of it. There's, it was below cave camp though. Um, uh, well below, um, the East Fork confluence, it's a nice camp. There wasn't anything wrong with it. It was where you guys ran into us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I was, I was up on a, on a cliff hanging out when you guys came by and I, I remember saying, 
I didn't didn't really make the connection that it was your group because I saw the oh, pack no, wraps, no, right? No, that's right. Like, you guys, no, you were at cave camp. That's what it was. Yeah, you, we you guys were at cave camp. Yeah, that's yeah. But yeah, those guys all went and talked to you. And okay, I think I when I came back down, they were like, "Oh man, this guy has a story." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, we passed you and camped a little farther down on River Right, and. It was at that point I started developing a new appreciation for the pack raft. The <laughs> stuff that those guys pulled out of those pack rafts blew me away. And they had been surfing waves the whole way down to camp, you know, just nice. running around paddling. And it was like, okay, all right, maybe this isn't a bad way to go. These things are very impressive. <laughs> but literally, um, Brian, who actually lives over in, in Driggs, not 40 miles from here, he, he brought a guitar. He brought a tent, a chair. I mean, the usual things, but he had a guitar. Those guys had a, a decent sized fire pan. They had a sandwich maker, a panini maker. They, they brought out literally a, a loaf of Italian bread, like, like a, a small bus. I mean, it was huge. <laughs> they started slicing it and they were making these pepperoni, mozzarella, I think there was spinach in there and tomato sauce paninis in over an open <laughs> fire. And literally, you know, you, they've got both handles of this thing and they're squeezing it and the, the juice is oozing out of both oh. sides. But we didn't have any food. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like torture. Oh, no, no. They were like, oh, they were, sharing. they were like, they were sharing it. And nice. They were like the most generous guys on the planet. And so they finished making these amazing sandwiches. And then they started baking cookies in <laughs> the panini maker. They brought a, a, a tube of, of raw cookie dough and were no baking cookies. So, <clears throat> yeah. These the, guys they, know how to lifestyle. Well, so, and the, the beauty of it was so fully loaded with all of this stuff. Their boats weighed less than my dagger code empty. They were, only, they were only running about 55 pounds at most. And they had all of this decadent stuff with them. And those, those alpaca rafts were performing at a very high level. And they said, actually, they perform better with gear in them. You know, they, they've got a better center of gravity. They punch through stuff better. They started reciting some of the trips they had done that were pushing. They had done a 14-day self-support Grand Canyon trip. And they said they ate like kings and had no problems whatsoever. Never needed resupplied. Um, it was it was very educational. Totally changed my my perspective of, of that there may be a pack raft in my future. For sure. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, this the story's quickly turning into an advertisement for alpaca pack rafts. <laughs> well, the the Valkyrie for sure. It's their their latest, greatest, most high performance. I've heard about uh, that. I've heard it's uh, like taking all the lessons from from boat design from hard shell design and yeah. uh, integrating them into these back rafts. And they were, they were, they were surfing waves and, you know, having very little difficulty just maneuvering them around. Um, one of the guys came from kayaking uh, and then the other guy started pack rafting and was then, and was getting into kayaking. So you had all this crossover mm -hmm. going, but both of them could roll, roll the alpaca raft. So that was, yeah, that was even more impressive. It's like, all right, okay, I'm going to have to look into one. <laughs> but, uh, but Dave and I, you know, really sort of 
depended upon the kindness of strangers that night to have a much better evening. And it was a really enjoyable evening, put us in a, a much better mood. <clears throat> and then the next morning, um, Brian wanted to just sit around and play guitar and, uh, they were, they were not in a great hurry to leave. So we pushed off and paddled down to the takeout through five mile, uh, just the two of us and really had a, a great day. And that's, that's just my favorite section of that run. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a little a bit got section. that North Forky feeling to it. It is fun in there. And I like, I like getting in there when it's big and bouncy. Um, but we got to the takeout and there was a note from Rick and he was ensconced in, I think the only motel in Bruno and was, was all right. And, um, we went up to Ed's house and, um, actually, no, he came down to the takeout in, in his vehicle and met us there. And, uh, yeah. And was more or less not too much worse for the wear. I mean, I think he probably had some healing to do. He had a, a substantial contusion on his leg. I mean, it was ugly. It was big and black and blue. Um, and it was, it was going to take some time to heal. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, we all ended up at the takeout one way or the, another. And we knew where every single piece of gear was, even though the red boat, the, the, the Zen didn't make it out. Uh, at that point in time. Here's Dave again. Uh, but now we had a boat we had to go get. How are we yeah. going to get it? Because you got to paddle to it. And if you paddle to it, that means you have another boat. And now you've got one too many boats. For sure. How are you going to do it? You need a Valkyrie. The pack raft. Mm-hmm. And, you know, light bulb moment. Now, the Valkyrie is 14 pounds and pretty big when you pack it up. There's other alpaca pack rafts that are much smaller, much lighter, not real whitewater kayak-like in their performance. And and so I found one in Pocatello from a buddy, and it's an older generation. And it was fine to get us through that Class 1, Class 2 section to get to the boat. Mm-hmm. But it's a bathtub toy. I mean, you would not want to paddle that through Five Mile Rapid, right? Gotcha. And so we couldn't do it the next week. And so two weeks later, we put this deal together. We find a guy in a four-wheel drive club in Twin Falls who's got a Razor, a four-seater side-by-side. And he's been in there before, and he's willing to take us in. And so Rick, my buddy, the guy that got hurt, He's still talking to me after what I did to him. <laughs> we're still friends and, and we're going to go in and get his boat and we're just going to do a Bruno trip so he can finish what he started. Okay. But I keep on asking friends. I'm like, what if we get there and there is no kayak and I've got this bathtub toy and everybody's like, Dio, the kayak's going to be there. I mean, you guys wrote a note. It's, you know, whitewater people, they're cool. No one's going to steal the boat. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I, I know. But what what if it's going to be there? And so it's the night before we're leaving to go in there on in the Razor, and I get a message from an inReach, and it's John Barker, who has just finished a commercial trip, and he's like, hey, I've got your boat. No need to go in there. It's going to be uh. in Bruno. Oh, God. 
Like what if? What are the chances? What if the you know there was the lines got crossed and that message didn't get to me because this was my biggest fear, right? Yeah, there was no boat. (laughs) So anyway, we ended up doing the trip anyway, and we went to Bruno and grabbed his boat and the razor took us in. And if you are going to do the Bruno without the garbage first, use a razor. (laughs) because that road going in i mean you're going through lava rock that looks as sharp as glass and i mean we're going like 30 miles an hour in places and those shocks you know i mean they're just taking it and you know i'm seeing rocks coming up i'm just like oh my gosh you know we're gonna blow all four tires and you just we just flew in there it was such an easy ride in this thing i'd never been in one and we got taken down and we spent the night at the hot springs and we got up the next day and we had a great trip. So, so that's got the a, story. We got a bonus yeah. trip out of it. Yeah. We got a bonus trip, but you know, it's just something I'm going to ruminate on for years. That lapse of situational awareness where I, I lost track of where I was in a place that I feel like I know really well. And everybody who knows the Jarbidge river and the rock that signifies Jarbidge falls. I mean, it's an obvious landmark how i didn't see it you know was i too concerned about rick behind me um i didn't slow things down didn't start eddy hopping i thought it was 15 20 minutes further than it was i did not recognize it for what it was when it should be so obvious i'll be asking myself this question for the rest of my years while i have any cognitive ability (laughs) yeah do you have, yeah, those are all, those are all good questions. You know, it really, it really rings true for me because I had this accident I was telling you about on the middle feather that uh, resulted in me having to walk out. And I was, I kept trying to think, cause similar to you, I've always said, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to be very cognizant of my ability and not try to paddle stuff beyond my ability, walk right. when I need to walk. I've been, I've been on the North Fork of the Payette. I've walked Jake's every time because of that. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I was kind of asking myself, what did I do wrong? How could I have prevented it? And I think the only thing I could really come up with for me was it was an awareness issue because it wasn't a paddling ability issue. It was that there was a log I didn't see until it was too late and, and it hit me. And I think I kind of came up with the same sort of questions that you did. Like, what if I was paying a little more attention? What if I'd slowed things down, Eddie hopped a little more, you know, maybe just taken my time a little bit more, been a little bit more aware of my surroundings but ultimately, right. you know, when you're on the river for hours like that, I mean, I'm sure you've done it on a, on your like local runs too, where you zone out for a little bit. You just kind of you like, zone out for a little bit, yeah. think of something that you shouldn't be thinking about and you're not yeah. in the moment. I mean, that was the big attraction to the North Fork of the Payette is that, you know, you just, you're usually in the moment all the time. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's so cool, right? You're in trouble and if you're not. I sure felt like I was on the garbage. I was in the moment, but there was something missing that I wasn't thinking about. And yeah, it almost could have killed my buddy. Didn't. Um, the only thing I think that was lost, if I remember correctly, Dave had a gravity feed MSR water filter and it was in the front of his boat and it got pulled out from behind the bulkhead and mm-hmm. somehow got lost. Small price to pay. That's, <clears throat> all things considered, that's pretty I've, amazing. I've had way more expensive trips than that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. 
yeah, a lot more expensive trips than that. Thousands of dollars worth of camera gear and other things. And yeah. Um, so, but you know, I mean, it's just in the grand scheme of the whole trip, I think the best thing I can say is that we figured out how to weather some really unfortunate circumstances that arose, you know, and, and that's, it's, that's, it happens. It's shit's going to happen on the river sometimes, especially at that level, you know, that level and above things don't always go perfect and it's how you deal with it. And I think the three of us did a really good job of that as, as far as, um, just putting our heads together and making sure that we all stayed reasonably calm and kept moving towards an extrication point, a place where we knew we could get somebody out without having to call for the the helicopter cavalry. Yeah, no, that sounds like you guys did an amazing oh. job and, you know, it's kind of a, you know, general in the, in the kayak in the paddling community, right? Like we, we like to be self-sufficient. That's one of the philosophies we try to live by is be, being prepared to handle your own shit when it happens. And so it's, it's nice to see that with a, with a few, a few lessons learned, maybe move the, the spot devices next time. Uh, I things, think things that's, like that. There's, yeah, I actually think it very well. Yeah. That's, that's the, biggest thing that that we came away with is 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 maybe really think about if you're going to have it it needs to it needs to be on you yeah it needs to be on your person <clears throat> not that that can't become unreachable too if uh, you know the worst case scenario if you're the person that ends up pinned in the river someplace and you're the only one that has one then it comes back down to you really start second guessing how many of those you have to have on each trip etc 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 do you always have a minimum of two um, but then you're starting to rely on technology again, technology and outside help too, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and there are places where sometimes outside help isn't going to get there all that fast. Yeah. And I've even heard of people not being able to get a satellite signal in, in some, in some places, you know, and it's some, got some of those guys that were, was on the trip with, they did the Rio Brazos down in New Mexico and said there were, there were spots in there where, they were, they had no satellite signal. It wouldn't have helped them one bit. Interesting. Uh, yeah, no, so, and uh, it makes me think I should probably get one. Um, and again, hopefully never need it, but have it. Um, and it, and probably the other, the other lesson is to not ever get too cavalier about where you are. And when, even when you think you know where you are on the river, you know, we, we definitely barreled into that a little bit, just, too quickly, even though I could feel it somewhere, the spidey sense was tingling. I say, I think we're getting close, but I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of going with the flow here. But I thought we were getting close, but I didn't think we were that close. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, we were all <clears throat> a lot closer than we thought. Yeah. I mean, I think it's human nature to retrospect on any kind of incident like that. I know my own, my own incident this year, I've thought a lot about awareness and how how that played in, like, you know, would have slowed things down, maybe been looking a little farther ahead. Maybe, maybe that would have avoided the situation, but it's, uh, it's tough too. When you're on a, I mean, what is the jar bridge? Like 70 something miles or 70 miles. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's a lot of time, long days where it's, that's a lot of time to just be intensely focused right like at some point your mind's going to wander a little bit absolutely uh, it's easier said than done but yeah no that's like that middle feather trip that you said you you got injured on i had done it several times as a three-day trip um 
and I started paddling with some California kayakers who that was, you know, it's almost a backyard run for them. And, uh, one time they wanted to do it as a single overnight trip. And we were, we actually ended up doing that entire run in a sum total of eight and a half hours of paddling over a a day and a half. And I, I was completely out of my league. I was, all I was seeing was the tail of a boat, you know, I literally (laughs) was following the the tail of a boat the whole way down. And then we ended up coming off at midday the next day and putting on and running ball rock that afternoon for my first so i was yeah and to them it was just another casual day in the park you know because it's their backyard runs yeah they're they have such good long runs they can get in shape for them in other places a long season too too. but sometimes you just yeah it's slowing down and, and enjoying the run and not pushing for these high speed runs is a good idea too for sure. But that's, that's kind of my recollection of all of it in a nutshell. And, you know, it ended at Ed's house, unfortunately, without Ed, he and Eileen had, had to go to Boise that time. So we didn't even get to sort of debrief the shuttle driver, which he always loves. Oh, I'm sure. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. That's, that's kind of still shuttle drive. Well, yeah. Well, well, thanks, John. That, that was, uh, that was an awesome story. Um, pretty, pretty unique and, uh, kind of cool to hear about. Uh, cool in retrospect i'm sure at the time it was pretty difficult situation to deal with but yeah with the plume i wouldn't want to repeat it let's put it that way yeah there was there was some type two three fun in there for sure it was type two three fun and it's one i would i would prefer not to go for that hike in a dry suit again that would yeah that must have been brutal probably was nice when it when it cooled off and started raining (laughs) if it weren't for the lightning (laughs) yeah i would i would much prefer not to do that in a dry suit and river shoes again anytime (laughs) soon for sure but uh, perhaps we'll have to go battling someplace sometime yeah that would be great and I'm, i'm super glad that everything turned out okay for you guys all right yeah me too me too what do you what do you think about uh, ability of paddlers? Because you mentioned, I mean, you were more, uh, you and John were clearly more than qualified to do a run like this. It sounded like your other friend was less experienced. Do you think it was a mistake for him to be on that run or? No, because he's ran it several times and I've been on, on very difficult rivers with him. Um, he didn't get the coaching that I got when I was learning. He did learn rather late in life too. So he didn't have that advantage. Um, he's one of the greatest mountain climbers in the world. He's used to remote, um, high stress situations. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 he had every, he, he, had, he would, he would have been fine making the move if he knew where it was and he would have gotten out. He, he was fine. He was fine. You know, I, I called his wife and apologized to her for putting her husband in harm's way. And he called me a couple days later because he knew I was just like so spun out on this, putting him in that kind of situation. He's like, well, and she and, and, and Rick, they've been together since they were kids and they've climbed all over British Columbia and all over the West and lived in Yosemite forever. And so she's a climber and she's used to this kind of stuff. And she's like, well, Rick, in defense of David, where was your situational awareness? <laughs> You're just following David like a lemming. You're just going to follow him around the corner. What if 
he had flipped and he had swam and you're in the lead. You're just going to run into Jarbeach Falls. And I was like, yeah. and I was like, so Dio, I, he's like, I have, you know, I contributed. And I thought that was very kind of him to even, you know, say something like that. And for Diane to, you know, call him out on it. And I was like, Oh, well, okay. But I mean, I was the one leading. Um, so I don't know. Is that's what a, it is. That's a super interesting point. Um, I know of a really serious accident recently that was similar where someone was following a leader and it, it resulted in disaster. And yeah, how much responsibility should you be putting on yourself? Cause we do that a lot as kayakers, right? We, we, trust someone who sometimes we don't even know that well in very serious situations to lead us into the right place. And right. maybe, maybe we're, you know, being over trusting in some of those cases. Yeah. It's interesting too, you know, the generations, how every generation pushes the envelope more and more than from the previous generation and garbage falls for some of these kids like Alec and Hayden Voorhees. I mean, you know, running it is just like nothing i mean you know they're gonna throw a wave wheel in there right and mike curiak was out there so he's a brand ambassador for alpaca and he's in his early 50s and he was out there with some kids at pretty high flow like 2300 on the bruno pretty high flow Mm -hmm. on the garbage and they i mean they were all in valkyries and these kids ran garbage falls like it was nothing in these valkyries oh wow that's cool um, it's funny, you know, the, what, what used to be class six is now class five. And, you know, these people are running site Z on the Stikine now, which was a mandatory portage 20 years ago. Now they're running it. And yeah, it's, wow. it's, it's amazing. The progression it's, of the sport. It's, it's cool yeah, to watch. So that's the story. Um, we'll keep it short, Kevin. I hope I get to see you face to face again in a different context and, you know, maybe the story will just get somebody to think a little bit and, you know, you may be really comfortable in a place, but you're losing sight of a big picture maybe and keep our eye on the big picture. Yeah. I think that's one of the nice things about sharing these stories. It gives people an opportunity yeah. to, to think about it and perhaps prevent accidents in the future. But I appreciate you coming on and sharing that because I know it can be uh you know, when no, nobody really likes to admit when we made mistakes. And, um, so it's, it's oh, it was humbling. I called a couple of those coaches from my earlier life and I said, you got to walk me through this. Cause I am, I'm freaking out here. And they're all like, yeah. Hey, it happens. You know, it's just like, we've all made these kinds of mistakes. If you've been paddling for 20, 30, 40 years, you've made some mistakes. And yep. Yep, and oh, it was really that. funny because one of the pioneers of whitewater kayaking in Idaho was Al Reynolds. Okay. You know, he was one of the first, I think he was the first person to run Loon Creek and first person to run the Rapid River into the Middle Fork. And um, we lost him last year to prostate cancer. But he took, so Rick Linsky, the guy who swam, uh-huh. he took him and one of my colleagues from Smith Eyewear, our VP of marketing, Kerry Maramoto. And another firefighter, one of Rick's buddies, took him down to Jarbage Bruno for their first trip. And that was back when Grayskull wasn't there. And so the big Class 5, which is now underwater, that's been replaced by Grayskull, was CV Falls. Okay. And here, one of the most seasoned whitewater kayakers in the state of Idaho. He'd probably be 78 years old now. 
you know, they're all following him like ducklings. Well, he loses, <laughs> he loses where he is and he leads them all into CV falls. Oh no. <laughs> yes. And so he swims, he swims into a log jam and somehow lives and Kerry Marmoto swims and the two rookies, they run the whole thing without swimming. Oh, no way. And so kind of the joke was now Rick has either ran or swam the entire jerkage. <laughs> a uh, dubious distinction, but uh, yeah. a distinction nonetheless. So, I mean, that just goes back to following the people that, you know, really know what they're doing. Yeah. Right? And and not keeping things in perspective yourself. Yeah. To some yeah. extent, um, there's probably some value in doing your own homework, running the river yeah. like you would run it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. let's be in touch. Happy Wednesday night. Yeah, fun. thanks so much. Thanks so much, David. I appreciate it. Yeah. And it'd be great to see you on the river sometime. You bet. Well, that wraps up the story of the Miss Portage on the Jarbage Bruneau. But as I was talking with John, he had so many great stories. I had to share a couple of the extra ones we recorded as a, a bonus. So enjoy. What was the first descent of in Mexico? Uh, it was a river called the Zaconeja. And yeah, it's probably never been run since. Um, really? Yeah, everybody on the trip, with the exception of Lars, took a near-death swim, including Lars' girlfriend at the time, uh, Beth Rippins. And uh, yeah, wow. Lars, Lars and Beth were on the trip. Um, even Cully had a bad swim, and Cully was running the trip. <laughs> <laughs> but we, it was, you know, this is a completely different story uh, for maybe for another time. But uh, we learned a lot about the the pitfalls of aerial scouting on that trip. Mm. We actually hired a Cessna 150 out of this tiny little town down along the, the Mexico Guatemalan border and mm. flew the canyon. And everything up from, you know, 500 feet up, flying at the stall speed of a Cessna 150, made the river look almost as good as the Hatate, which is a gem and should be, you know, if you ever have a chance to go to Mexico and run the Hatate, highly, highly recommend it. It is a blast. It's okay. like running Havasu Creek on steroids, 15 and 20 foot waterfalls, perfect travertine, wow. uh, pretty forgiving. And the, the Zaconeha looked a lot like that from the air. And we ended up spending 10 days in there. 10 uh, days. Basically having, yeah, epic after epic after epic. That was my first really near-death swim uh, up underneath a log. I swam, I swam underneath a tree that must have had 50 limbs and a trunk buried underneath a cliff. And somehow my kayak ended up underneath the, tr the base of the trunk. Luckily, the water was crystal clear and I could see all the way up through all these branches. And I can still close my eyes and sometimes visualize that feeling of like, okay, I'm pretty deep underwater. I can see the surface, but I know I have to navigate all of these branches to get back to where I can breathe again. Whoa. And it took you know, probably in my mind, it took forever and it probably took five or six, maybe 10 seconds and crawling up through these limbs and stuff. And that was 
one of 15 stories on that trip oh there yeah everybody larry brian um beth rippon swam through a sieve larry swam through a sieve cully uh who at the time was somewhat famous ended up swimming through this horrendous sort of semi-travertine sieve burying his boat it took us couple hours to get that one free it, it, you know it's again, was it that you were just go, going for it or were you just, no, we were, we were just trying to get out of this canyon this, yeah this, but i mean could you could could you not see these hazards and portage around them i think some of those might just turn to a portage fest at some we, point we ended up yeah portaging a lot but okay just sometimes just paddling into stuff and all of a sudden being into it too soon and, and just like oh my god who's and the the lead boat was always the one ending up in trouble so I guess if you're already in 10 days deep, it's probably at some point you have to just start paddling oh, some things, right? Yeah. Got to get yeah. out of there. At, at one point we ended up paying some, some uh, probably Mexicans of Mayan descent a fair bit to, to portage us around what we knew was worse than everything we had run so oh, far. Really? Yeah. I've got photographs. I have 35 millimeter slides buried of oh, it someplace. Pretty funny. Yeah, we're, doing, we're, do, we're doing the podcast on the, the wrong stories here. This sounds like an incredible story. <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. It was a real learning experience. It actually was, in, in retrospect, I mean, nobody died. I guess that's the best way to look at it. And we all came back with fantastic memories and new friendships. Definitely, uh, that was where I met Larry. And I still I, I paddled the bear with him two years ago. So we're talking, you know, close to 40 years now getting up there and um, yeah so it's it's pretty amazing the the friends you make on the river sometimes and how long those friendships last yeah i have to imagine back then too where the community was even i mean it's small now but it was way way smaller back then i imagine that everyone must have been a lot tighter yeah and forms forms of communication were were tough too i mean we didn't even have cell phones you know nobody knew what the internet was we would call i remember first few times going to California, you know, you, you had to call this phone number and listen for 15 minutes. It seemed like to get the flow on the river that you were most interested in paddling and you, there might be 20 <laughs> rivers in front of that. So you were either riding furiously or just listening very carefully. And, <laughs> and then if you missed it, you'd have to call back again. And sometimes <laughs> you would do that from a payphone. You know? <laughs> I don't even know if there are there pay phones anymore. Probably not. You know, they don't exist very many places if they do exist. Yeah. They're pretty hard to find. I feel, I feel like you must know Forrest Noble. Uh, oh, yeah. Know, yeah. yeah. So he, he's actually my, he actually in, in many ways inspired me to do this podcast. He was my first podcast episode, but I always kind of like make fun of the fact that he, he never knows what water levels are anywhere. You know, never knows how to look them up. He's just, he always just has like, Oh yeah, you just got to call like this guy, you know, for that river. And so I think that comes from that old school way of that, figuring yeah, out what the yeah. flows are places. Call the locals and find out what's running. Yeah. He doesn't even care. Like, is it high? Is it low? He's like, is it, is it in or is it not? Like there's it's just binary, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No. And, and we, you know, a lot of times you went by that, you went by the snow of the year and you kind of, you picked when you thought you should go and you, know, you tried to plan your time off or, you know, in my case, luckily I was a river guide up here in Jackson. So sometimes I was going to school in Laramie uh, at the time too. I would have like a month to go paddling every spring. And it worked out really well then. It was it was pretty amazing. Sometimes I could just go know that I was going to go paddle for 30 days straight. 
Yeah, you know, that sounds fantastic. Knock off a lot of a lot of things, must do's yeah, for sure. And I didn't paddle the North Fork a lot each year like a lot of guys do. It was always sort of this rite of passage where we would go over and get, if we were lucky, four or five days over there. You know, now it runs all summer and everybody paddles it all summer. Mm-hmm. They used to leave it dry and you'd have to wait for them mm-hmm. to turn it on. And that was back, that. back in those days, um, it was, you were waiting for the North Fork to turn on and come up to 15, 1800 to be, you know, ah, it's time to drive. Let's go run the North Fork. And then you would just go paddle it until you were just beat to death and couldn't, couldn't even put your spray skirt on anymore <laughs> <laughs> because you knew your time was short. I think that was what it was. And, you know, a lot of us sense. were all working class stiffs anyway. And, you know, none of us were at that by then. Yeah, we all had jobs that we had to go back to. I mean, us, us Colorado voters can relate to that mentality because here it, it comes and it goes very quickly and you've got to get it while you can. Always, always. Yeah. And you guys, that, that's a long pilgrimage to get to the north where the pay at for you too. It's seven hours from here. So I'm, that's a 15 hour drive from where you live probably. It is. I haven't, I've, I haven't done it as much as I would like to, but man, it is a fantastic stretch of whitewater talking about the bottom five. I remember the first time I was there and we did a top to bottom and then we were just kind of sitting around, kicking back and someone thought, oh, should we just do another bottom five? And we're like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And we got done with it. We we're like, that was so fun. Like our afterthought was, you know, like just a stellar run. Exactly. And it's and at a certain point in life, you know, that's enough. I don't, I probably won't ever run the, the top of the North Fork again, but I'm pretty comfortable on the bottom seven for sure. Yeah, and the bottom yeah. five, I, you know, I, I'm very comfortable on it, and just feel like that's that's enough. I can drive over there if I can get nine runs on the bottom five. That's that's a quality three day weekend for sure. Absolutely. And but, you and you and you told me earlier when I was when I was mentioning that I got hurt my shoulder earlier this summer. You kind of showed me a picture and said, "Well, don't let this happen to you." And you gave me this like incredible x-ray of this huge prosthetic in your shoulder so that must have had a pretty big effect on your your paddling it has yeah it's definitely made me step back a a big a big notch for sure i don't run hard class five anymore i mean that's i think i asked you if anybody in your party had paddled uh, jarbage falls on your on your bachelor trip that you guys were on and uh, i figured it probably everybody in your group stepped up and paddled it. So I was sort of surprised uh, when you said no, but I, I don't even come into that little eddy with the thought of like, well, maybe this time I'll run it, you know, anymore. It's easy enough to just walk right on down the side and put back in and be quite happy with that trip. I'm not, I don't feel like I have anything to prove anymore for sure. Yeah. Well, that can also be a good place to be, right? A shoulder replacement changes your perspective for sure it's it, you're you're living on borrowed time uh they make it very clear to you uh the reverse that i have especially yeah i that's much more serious than a normal one i have friends that have regular shoulder replacements and they're back battling probably as at as high a level as before they had the replacement hmm. um, it's that's a different level yeah. yeah so still not recommended though put it off yeah. as long as you can <laughs> Yeah, your your God given joints are pretty nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Original original factory equipment is highly recommended. <laughs> still, it's still inspiring always to me to hear people that just keep going and don't give up. Uh, that's 
it's like i don't know as i as i as i age and i have things starting to wear out it's kind of inspiring to me to hear that like people find a way to keep going and keep oh, getting for out sure. there having fun yeah 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 no i have a hip replacement too so i mean that's you know and i still ski still hunt on foot um and still portage happily you know with a heavily loaded boat on one shoulder and don't think too much about it and that hike that i did uh, in, in the garbage was testament to the fact that i i never thought about the hip once just scrambling over all that horrible lava rock up there along the, the sides of the cliff walls that was that was fairly challenging to say the least. well that wraps up today's episode a big thanks again to john and dave for being willing to share their story i have some more episodes in the works that i hope to share with you in the coming months and in the meantime if you have any guests that you would suggest to me or any stories yourself that you want to share please contact me at tales from the crypts at gmail.com Thanks for listening.